All right, good morning. Um, yeah, I, I pastor a church as well, so I don't have the uh, opportunity to visit many churches. Um, but whenever I do have the chance of visiting other churches, this is one of my favorite places to visit. So thank you again for having me. Um, I'm supposed to talk on the uh, topic of wisdom today. Um, but uh, truth, truthfully, I, I feel like I've personally benefited uh, from your wisdom, uh, just listening to all of you share. Uh, and so I just wanted to say thank you for the wisdom that is uh, very much present in this room as well. So uh, we're going to dive into Proverbs chapter 4 today. And so if you can stand with me, I'm just going to read the passage for us uh, from so, some select verses in Proverbs chapter 4. I don't know if we have it up there. There we go. Listen, my son, to a father's instruction, pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me and he said to me, take hold of my words with all your heart, keep my commands and you will live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, though it cost all you have. Get understanding. Hold onto instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So uh, a few Sundays ago, I got, um, I got a text from a friend of mine who's a pastor out in Los Angeles. And he texted me in capital letters, help. And he said, my, my nephew, his cousin, and their friend, they're stranded in JFK. And this is, meanwhile, this is Sunday night. So they're stranded in JFK. And their next flight to L.A. isn't until Wednesday. Is there anything that you can do to help? And he said, apparently, in New York City, you can't get um, lodging in a hotel room unless you're at least 21 years old. And they were all teenagers. So I, I texted him back, and I was like, dude, they can, they can just stay with us. And so uh, just like that, my, my wife Hannah and I, we became parents to three teenagers. And um, they were sleeping on her floor on the couch. And um, as we got to know them and as they got to know us, uh, we found out that they had just graduated from high school. And this was the summer before they went off to college. And so they just wanted to visit New York City. And this was probably totally unsolicited, but uh, somehow the conversation steered toward my wife Hannah and I giving them advice about what we would do if we were in their shoes starting college again. And it got me thinking because um, I just turned 44 last month, 
And um, I, I thought to myself, if I could go back in time and talk to my 20-year-old self, what is the best piece of advice I would give to my 20-year-old self? What is the best piece of advice I would give to my 30-year-old self? What is the best piece of advice I would give to my 40-year-old self? I can't do 50 or 60 yet. Some of you can. But if the tables were turned, if the tables were turned, and you could go back in time, what is the best piece of advice you would give to your 20-year-old self, 30-year-old self, 40-year-old self, 50-year-old self, 60-year-old self? What is the best piece of advice you would give? Maybe some of you would say, finding romantic love. Some of you would say financial freedom. Some of you might say comfort and stability. Others of you might just say security. What is the best piece of, of, uh, of advice that you would give to your 20, 30, 40 year old self? If you've never read the book of Proverbs before, uh, most of the Proverbs are written by King Solomon, although there are a few other authors. Uh, but King Solomon mo wrote most of them. And when King Solomon is writing these Proverbs, he writes from the perspective of a father to his children, which is why it says in verse 1 to 3, Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. And so Solomon is very much writing from the perspective of a father to his younger children. And he's trying to give them bits and pieces of advice. And when you read all the Proverbs, there are lots of pieces of advice that the authors give. But there does seem to be one thing in particular that Solomon wants his children to possess more than anything else. And no, it is not romantic love. It's not financial freedom. It's not comfort or stability. But that one thing that all of us must possess and acquire in life is wisdom, which is why he writes in verse 5 and 7, get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. The beginning of wisdom is this. You have to get wisdom. This is the one thing more than anything else all of us must possess in this journey of life. Now the question now is, well, what exactly is wisdom? I like how Charles Spurgeon defines wisdom when he says this. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great as a fool, a, a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. This is the reason why you can have knowledge without wisdom but you cannot have wisdom without knowledge. Let me just say that one more time. You can have knowledge. There are a lot of smart people that are fools. You can have knowledge without wisdom, but you cannot have wisdom without knowledge. 
Tim Keller defines wisdom, uh, actually not Tim Keller, one of my former professors, he defines wisdom as the ability to skillfully navigate through life. Skillfully navigating through life. And Tim Keller defines wisdom this way. Wisdom is knowing what to do with the 80% of life where moral rules don't apply. So there are certain things in life where moral rules do apply. It's very clear. Like, should you rob a bank? Probably not. Uh, should you hurt a six-month-old baby? Probably not, right? So this is where the moral rules do apply. But it seems to me that 80% of life, should I switch careers? Should I move to a different city? Should I marry this person? There really is no right or wrong decision per se. And so the morals don't really apply. And this is where we need to have wisdom to know what exactly to do, because it's not necessarily a black and white decision. So why is wisdom then so important? In verse 4, 13, and 22, Solomon writes this. Then he taught me, and he said to me, take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands, and you will live. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. For they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. And so what Solomon is writing here is that a life filled with wisdom, it leads to life mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. But a life that lacks wisdom leads to a slow kind of death emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually. So a life that is filled with wisdom leads ultimately to a flourishing life. And so now the question is this, if that's why we need to have wisdom because it leads to a flourishing life, how do we know whether we're really living a life of wisdom or not? Well, if you've never read the Bible before, uh, one of my favorite characters in the Bible is uh, a person named Peter. And I love Peter because he's always putting his foot in his mouth. And there's this one time where when he first meets Jesus, he's in awe of him. Because here's a fellow Jew who, who has this kind of power. And he's, he's liberating those that are sick and have diseases. He's, he's flipping over systems that are unjust. He's critiquing legalism, traditionalism, Phariseeism. He is, he's, he's turning their culture upside down. And you have to realize that Jewish people in the first century world were an oppressed people by the Romans. And so when Peter looks at Jesus, he sees like their Moses, their liberator, the one that has come to set their people free from the oppression that they're experiencing because of all the things that Jesus are doing. And, and by the way, all the things that are, he, he was doing are things that we should care about as well. But as Jesus is doing all of these things, all of a sudden, he starts to talk about how he has to die. And he has this like obsession with his own death. And this is what we read in Mark 8. 31 and 32. Jesus, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
And I love the rich imagery here because Peter doesn't want to embarrass his rabbi in front of everyone. So he's like, hey, Jesus, can we just get a moment? Like, what, what is this morbid obsession that you have with your death? You're like 31 years old. Like, why do you keep talking about the fact that you have to die? Like, if we're going to see a revolution take place amongst our people, we need you alive for like the next 20, 30, 40 years. But you keep talking about dying all the time, and we can't have that. So you need to quit that. And in the following verses, Jesus says to Peter, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he now rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their souls? Peter understandably wanted to liberate his own people, which is so important. But Jesus came also to not only liberate his people, but the world. For Peter, the greatest enemy were Romans, and they were a ruthless people. But for Jesus, his greatest enemy was sin and death, which was also plaguing the Romans, by the way. And so Peter, in many ways, wanted to play checkers in life, while Jesus wanted to play chess in life. So how do you know then if you are truly living a life of wisdom? And I would say, look at the questions that Jesus is asking Peter. Do you have in mind the concerns of God or do you merely have in mind human concerns? What good is it if you gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? This is why uh, sometimes Richest, the richest people in the world are some of the poorest people you will ever meet because all they have is money, but they have a poverty of relationships, a poverty of friendships, a poverty of love that they experience, a poverty of a church family sometimes. You could be so rich and yet so poor. You can gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul. And so the question that I want to pose to every one of us today is this. As you think about the way that you're living your life Monday through Friday, do you have in mind the concerns of God or do you merely have in mind human concerns? Not that those concerns are unimportant. Sometimes they're very important. But do you only have in mind those things or do you also have in mind the concerns of God? And that is the metric or the scorecard for how we ought to live our lives. So how do we grow in this wisdom? Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. When the author here talks about the fear of the Lord, he's not so much talking about how we need to be afraid of God, so much as he's talking about how we need to be in awe of who God is. It is only when we look at the face of God that we ourselves can grow in wisdom. This is why in Psalm 46.10, it says, Be still and know that I am God. 
And oftentimes, the reason why we are not in awe of who God is is because we live such busy and hurried lives. We are not still. Like sometimes the, the, two, the two minutes that Chris was leading us in, it can feel like 20 minutes. Right? It is very hard for us to be still, but it is only when we learn to slow down our lives, our hurried lives, it is only when we do that that we can be in awe of who God is. And so some practices that I try to instill in my life, they all start with the letter S, and there are four of them, is that we need to practice stillness instead of hurriedness. And by the way, there's a difference between busyness and hurriedness. We're all busy. Hurriedness, though, is more of an interior state of thinking and feeling. So sometimes we feel hurried even though we don't really have to do anything, right? So there's a, bus- a difference between busyness and hurriedness. So we have to learn to pump the brakes, especially in our city. And we have to learn how to be still, which is why I think that the practice that you have for two minutes on Sundays is so important. We have to practice silence especially in our city, because of all the noise that is around us. It will be impossible for you to hear God with all the noise around you unless you learn to be silent. Thirdly, solitude versus distraction and all the things that are pulling your attention. And lastly, scripture versus social media or any kind of screen time. So the more you practice these things, the more you can be in awe of who God is, the more you are in awe of who God is, the more you increase in wisdom. This is the beginning of wisdom. However, the reason why these four things are very challenging for us is because it comes at a cost. And so if you take a look at verse 7, it says this, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, though it cost all you have, gain understanding. Gaining wisdom will cost you. It will cost you time on your phone. It will cost you your insatiable desire for dopamine hits from your phone. It will cost you sometimes your group of friends. The reason why Jesus was able to hang out with prostitutes and tax collectors is because he influenced them more than they influenced him. Are there a group of friends in your life where you are not influencing them as much as they are influencing you? And so at times, following Jesus may cost you even your group of friends. It will cost you pain as you enroll in the school of hard knocks. The most wise people I know have scars on their back from all the emotional trauma that they have experienced in in life, but they learn to steward that pain very well. And as a result, we're able to harvest a wealth of wisdom. So gaining wisdom will cost you something. It doesn't just happen naturally. You can grow old without becoming wise, but you cannot grow wise without becoming old. Can I say that again? You can grow old without becoming wise, but you cannot grow wise without becoming old. And what I mean by that is you will never meet like a 10-year-old sage rubbing their beard on the top of the Himalayas. They just haven't experienced enough in life. But as you experience these things and you steward the pain that you receive well, this is how we grow in our wisdom. And when you think about the life of Jesus in particular, 
Jesus also grew in wisdom, and it cost him a great deal. Now, how does that work? Because on the one hand, Jesus is 100% divine and 100% God. On the other hand, sometimes we forget that he's also 100% human. He wasn't 50% God, 50% human. He was 100% God, but he was also 100% human as well, which is why in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says this, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. In his humanity, Jesus had to learn how to walk and talk and read and use the bathroom, but he also had to learn how to grow in wisdom in terms of his humanity. But the way that Jesus grew in wisdom is unlike the way that we grow in wisdom. For us, usually the way that we grow in wisdom is we fall on our face and we learn from our mistakes. But you have to realize that Jesus was totally sinless. He didn't make any mistakes. So the question is then, how did Jesus grow in wisdom if he didn't learn from his own mistakes? I don't know who said this, but someone once wrote this. A wise man, let's see if we have it up on the next slide. Do we have it? We might not, okay. Someone wrote this, I don't know who wrote this, but they wrote, a wise man learns by the experience of others. An ordinary man learns by his own experience. A fool learns by nobody's experience. Let me just say that again. A wise man learns by the experience of others. An ordinary man learns by the experience of, his, of himself. A fool learns by nobody's experience. Jesus grew in wisdom by learning from the experience of others. And that's what wisdom is. And that is my hope for all of us, that we don't only have to learn from our mistakes, but we also learn from the experiences of other people around us. And this is how Jesus also grew in wisdom. But there was one very foolish thing that Jesus did with his life. One very, very foolish thing. Do you know what he did? He loved us. And the thing about love is that, I don't know if you've ever fallen in love before, but when you fall in love, love makes you do irrational, crazy things that you wouldn't ordinarily do. And when you think about Jesus, he entered into a relationship with you and me, and he wasn't marrying up, he was marrying down. We're the ones with the issues, not him. But he foolishly, out of his love for us, entered into a relationship knowing not only that, that we had issues and problems, but knowing that it would actually cost him his life if he entered into a relationship with us. But he foolishly did it. And the reason why Jesus foolishly did it was because of his love for you and me. This is why Paul says in Corinthians, uh, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. In his wisdom and foolishness, he entered into a relationship to die for you and me. And when you realize that he purposely did that out of his love for you, in his wisdom, you will want to enter into a relationship with him too. 
That is the wise thing to do, to live attached to him, not unattached to him. And as you, as you grow attached to Jesus and have a relationship with him, you know, and, and you realize that he truly is the fountain of all wisdom. You know, one of the things that happens in life is that the, the people that you rub against the most in life, the people that you spend the time most with, are the people that you become. We are the product of the people that we spend the most time with. And if it's true that Jesus is the source of all wisdom, the more you spend time with him, the more you increase in wisdom as well. So Pete Scazzaro lists some practices that I think are really important for us. And he says, success or wisdom is remaining in communion with Jesus throughout each day. Success or wisdom is embracing the season God has me in, be it fall, winter, spring, or summer. And I know that some of you are experiencing winter right now. Success or wisdom is resisting temptations of the evil one. Success is trusting in Jesus. Success is receiving God's limits as a gift. Not God's limits, but the limits that I have as a finite creature. So the ability to say no to things and not yes to everything. Success is experiencing ongoing transformation in my life. Success is being present with the people around me, seeing their beauty and their value. He wants to be in a relationship with you. Do you want to be in a relationship with him? And these are some of the things that we need to do. And I say that because what we experience in our culture every single day is a reverse type of exorcism. Exorcism is when you're casting demons out of people. Reverse exorcism is when our culture is casting the Jesus in you out of you. When it is casting the spirit in you out of you. Every day we are experiencing reverse exorcism where our culture is pulling the Jesus out of you. And so it's so important for us to spend time with Jesus, with silence, scripture, solitude, and all of these things in order for us to grow in wisdom if he truly is the fountain of all wisdom. And as you get to know him better, you begin to know yourself better. And as you get to know yourself better, you begin to ask questions like this. Scazzaro says in the next slide, you begin to ask yourself questions like, why am I always in a hurry? Why am I so impatient? What is that anxiety all about? Why am I so angry? And why did I get so defensive yesterday? Why do I avoid conflicts? Why am I replaying that conversation over and over and over again in my head? Why am I perpetually unsatisfied? Why am I afraid? Why do I always feel left out? And as you get to know him, you get to know yourself. And as you get to know yourself, you begin to ask these questions, hard questions. But as you do these things, something begins to happen. You begin to grow in wisdom more and more. I want to read you uh, a text that I received from uh, another one of my friends whose um, wife recently got cancer. And I asked him permission if I could share this with you all because I thought it was a good example of wisdom in the midst of a season of winter. And I'll close with this. My friend wrote, as my wife and I have been going through this season of unexpected suffering, we have experienced a lot of emotions and feelings. And when I have some quiet moments alone, I have pondered questions in my mind. 
Naturally, the questions like, why is this happening to my wife? Or why is this happening to us? Or God, why did you allow this? Have crossed my mind. But those questions don't stay on my mind. Rather, another set of questions stay and linger on my mind. And those questions are, how can anyone go through something this scary without faith and hope in a God who loves them and who cares for them, who is with them and who has promised to heal them, if not partially in this life, then fully in the life to come at the resurrection of the body? How can anyone go through something like this alone without a church family that loves them, prays for them, weeps with them, cares for them, and supports them? And it makes me thankful beyond words that my wife and I are Christians and that we belong to a wonderful and loving church family. By the goodness and grace of God, what stays and lingers in our hearts is gratitude for God and for his comforting love that comes through you, his people. Fear and anxiety come and go, but thanksgiving and a peace that surpasses all understanding stay. Thank you to our dearest church family because we feel so loved by God through your love for us. And we love you so much. Our Father has been so, so good to us. That's wisdom. And my hope and my desire for all of us in this room uh, is that we wouldn't live foolish lives. Uh, and that no matter how old you are, uh, that we would continually desire to grow in wisdom more and more. And what does wisdom look like? It looks like Jesus. And that is my prayer for next time. Let's pray together.